Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. James White. It's a joy to have you here, sir. It's good to be with you. Uh, let's begin with the story. Tell us about yourself that how did you come to know Jesus Christ? Well, I don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about myself. I was raised in a Christian family. Uh my earliest memories are uh of church and uh, my father was a minister. Um my grandfather, my great grandfather before him, so going all the way back. So, uh I was very very blessed to be converted at a very young age. I really believe that I was converted at a very young age. Um I I clearly remember for example the age of 9 Um my mom took me to work with her. She worked as a secretary at a print shop. And um she looked around, couldn't find me and went back and found me standing among the printing presses uh arguing with the uh with the adult men running those printing presses on the existence of God. I remember that by the way. Uh they looked like mountains to me that were so huge. So I I guess I got an early start on that type of uh type of thing. Um but it It wasn't uh, until uh, high school I had intended to go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I thought maybe medical missions down the road something like that. I I don't know, but um uh, Lord got hold of me and um make a long story short, uh, uh I married young. Uh very thankful that I did. My wife and I have been married for over 40 years and um she had uh, she's an identical twin. and so uh the more missionaries came by and and wanted to convert her and so <laughs> she got hold of me and and um uh we came over and I met with elders Reed and Reese the LDS church the Mormon church and really that's what started all of it was I realized that I didn't know enough about I certainly didn't know enough about what they believed and I quickly came to realize that though I was a preacher's kid was raised in the church and things like that I didn't know enough about what I believed to express it with the the type of clarity that I needed to do so uh, I knew the Mormons weren't going to try to bridge the communication gap that would be up to me and so um that led over a number of years to uh, the founding of Alpha Omega Ministries uh 40 years ago this coming uh, October I believe is our 40th anniversary of uh, the ministry and uh, everything that's come since then and uh that has included uh, uh a lot of travel around the world i don't travel outside the united states now i'm not flying uh after the um uh pandemic stuff uh we can get can get into that for other reasons at some other point if we want to i suppose but but now i'm traveling and uh, teaching for uh grace bible theological seminary and of course uh uh I'm one of the pastors at Apologia Church which means those young guys Jeff Durbin, uh Luke Pearson, uh Zach Morgan they they keep me uh they keep me young they keep me hopping. Uh, actually Luke just normally insults me about how old I am. Uh he thinks I know a lot about church history because I was actually there. Uh and so uh let's see young guys yeah I I I just always laugh and go just wait it's coming for you too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that full head of hair will someday disappear it's uh how it works but 
anyways, that's a little bit about me. I'm, I'm married, uh, two kids, five grandkids. Wish I had had more kids, to be honest with you. Um, and um, my daughter, Summer, has a uh, webcast called Sheologians that a lot of people listen to. Um, she's uh, The apple didn't fall far from the tree with, uh, with Summer. She's very much like I am. And um, um, in fact, I'm more than happy to admit that uh, there have been a number of times I've I've gone to her uh, to get information. She was way ahead of me on a lot of this um, intersectionality, social justice stuff. She had been dealing with that for a couple of years before I even became aware of it. And uh, so it's uh, exciting to, to see that. You grew up in a Christian, Christian home, so that made a difference. So praise God for that. And now we can see the result of that teachings and that upbringing. People are being blessed through your ministry and through your works. So praise God. And in theism, Jesus is regarded as divine being and people from other religions and other other religious worldviews consider him as guru, a teacher, peacemaker, and etc. So from Indian perspective, isn't Jesus one among many avatars? What do you think? Well, you know, a number of years ago, I had to teach a class at a seminary on world religions. And uh, I'll be perfectly upfront with you. Um, I I know Judaism and Roman Catholicism and Islam uh, very, very well. But when I started reading up on uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, um, there is a very different mindset. Uh, there is a very different way of thinking uh, in the East than in the West. And I think part of it was just simply, you know, here where I live in Arizona, um, don't have a whole lot of, um, opportunities to dialogue with people from an, an Eastern perspective. And so it might help me to understand a little bit better to have more of those opportunities. I just simply haven't had them. And so, uh, the one thing that unites Christians together uh, around the world is our commitment to the fact that God has spoken and he has spoken uh, consistently in the scriptures and that Jesus, uh, the risen Lord and Savior, uh, has verified the veracity, the truthfulness of those scriptures. He has, in fact, if you recall, when he was um, arguing with the Sadducees in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, at one point he, he says to them, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we normally don't catch exactly what Jesus meant there because we're focused on the argument, which is about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so he was demonstrating the reality of the resurrection by saying that God is, not was, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in the presence of God. But it's interesting what Jesus actually said. He said, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? And normally in the English language, you would say, and same thing in Greek, obviously, which is written in, um, have you not read what I wrote to you? Or did you not hear what I said to you? But instead, Jesus says, have you not read what God spoke to you? And so from Jesus' perspective, when you read the Bible, you are, God is speaking to you. God is, th this is direct speech of God. And of course, 
the quotation that Jesus gave was from scripture that had been written 1400 years earlier. And yet God held men accountable for what he had inspired 1400 years earlier. And so I think the best view to have is the view of the man who predicted his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. So um, when when you do that and you leave behind an empty tomb and you uh, have over 500 people who witness your resurrection and then you ascend into heaven, uh, your views of what Scripture should be are, are final. And so it is that scriptural revelation that gives us the foundation of knowing that Jesus isn't just one God amongst many gods. In fact, there's a book in the New Testament um, called uh, it's Paul's Epistle to the Colossians. And the religious movement that was coming into Colossae seemed to be coming from the East. And uh, you, you may be familiar with the scholarly term for it, proto-Gnosticism, an early form of Gnosticism. Um, but, but Gnosticism does share some worldview elements with Eastern religions. And it is in that book that Paul describes Jesus not as uh, one amongst many uh, divine beings, uh, one amongst many ways of knowing God or something along those lines. Instead, you recall when he began his epistle, he describes the Son as the one by whom were all things made, whether in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, or authorities, all things created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things, and the Greek term is sunestekin, hold together, have coherence. Um, Jesus is the creator. Um, whoever you're speaking to, anywhere on this planet, every beat of their heart, every breath of their mouth is being extended to them by the grace of Christ. He is their maker. He is their creator. Um, as, as John chapter 1 said, the Logos was in the beginning and with God uh, and was as to his nature God, and nothing has come into existence apart from him. And so... He is the very instrument of creation itself, and so he can't just be an avatar. He can't be just be one um, uh, of amongst many manifestations of some form of deity. Uh, instead, the New Testament identifies him, as well as the Father and the Spirit, uh, with the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, which a lot of people don't know. And I will be interested. In fact, you can tell me something here. Um because uh, in in the Bible translations that you have uh, there in India, now obviously you speak very excellent English, and so you probably have access to an English Bible or something along those lines. But it's really important for everyone to recognize when in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the name of God is being used. Now, in most English translations, they just have the word Lord, but they put it in capital forms, L-O-R-D in capital forms. But in the Hebrew language, that is the what's called the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. We sometimes mm -hmm. slaughter that as Jehovah in English. It could not have been pronounced that way, but be that as it may. Um, 
the New Testament writers, and that's God's personal name in the Old Testament. That's that's his covenant name with the people of Israel. The New Testament writers identify the Father as Yahweh. They identify the Son as Yahweh, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. This is one of the clearest evidences, I think, of the unity of the doctrine of the Trinity, is that the New Testament writers go out of their way to identify Jesus as Yahweh. I could show you a number of places if you're really interested in that. Um, it's something that I address rather uh, fully in my book, The Forgotten Trinity, because I think it's one of the key elements of the demonstration of the deity of Christ. And so if Jesus is Yahweh, he can't be some lesser manifestation or anything like that. He is, well, as the, the prophecy had said, what does Isaiah 9, 6 say? Uh, when he's described the one that the... the the, the son that is to be given, the child that is to be born, the government will be upon his shoulders. What are his names? One of his names is Aviad in Hebrew, father of eternity. And then the Hebrew phrase is El Gabor, mighty God. Very same uh, used of, of Yahweh in Isaiah 10, 21. And so here you had the prophecy of this one that would to become, would be El Gabor, father of eternity, mighty God. And that's who Jesus, that's who Jesus is. And so uh, it's not like you have lots and lots of gods. Um, as Paul said to the Corinthians, who it, it, you're probably familiar with Corinth. Corinth had a, uh, a temple on every corner. And so there were lots of gods being worshipped in Corinth. But when Paul wrote to Corinth, to the Corinthians, he said, even though there are many so-called gods, those that are called gods, we know, that is the followers of the creator of the universe, we know there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he uses the language there of the great Jewish prayer, the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. But Paul expands that in light of the Incarnation to reveal the Father and the Son um, and to include the Son in that. And so monotheism, the fact there's only one true God, is a central element of biblical revelation. And um, I would imagine you're probably uh, very, very, very familiar with the, the, the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 through 48. Because that section of scripture, to me, is the longest extended defense of the uniqueness of God uh, in all of scripture. And hence would probably be extremely useful in um, there in India in speaking with people. Because we can't change hearts and minds. But the word of God can. It's described as being active and alive and and um, able to accomplish many things. And so bringing the word of God to bear, uh, showing people in scripture where God says, I'm the only God, I know of no others. And then even putting the false gods on trial and saying, okay, you say you're a God, then tell us what's going to happen in the future. And, and this is the passage I'm going to be preaching on at the G3 conference in a couple months here in here in the United States, and tell us what happened in the past and why it happened. Now, only the sovereign true God can do those types of things, and uh, that's the God of Scripture. So uh, there aren't 
there aren't there's no way to uh, squish Jesus into uh, a role as an avatar or a lesser deity or anything like that. Uh, he is the creator, and that is the consistent testimony of Scripture, Old and New Testament. Mm, that's great. So the the resurrection makes him the unique, and the the work and the person of Christ makes him the unique, uh, unique, right? Um, unique what? Unique means he's not um, avatars. He is, and the yeah. as you said, the Old and New Testament is consistent that he is the god well, who created the heavens and the earth it's it's not just it's not just resurrection because other people have been resurrected i mean jesus raised lazarus from the dead that didn't make lazarus a deity but the fact that you have the prophecy being fulfilled and that therefore when jesus uh, you know in john chapter 8 um jesus had men coming to him and they they were listening to him teaching and they said, boy, that guy sounds pretty sharp. He sounds pretty pretty cool. But Jesus knew they weren't real believers. And he said to them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I remember who the I am is in the Bible, in, mm -hmm. in Exodus. It's the name of God. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so the resurrection demonstrates that what Jesus said about himself was true. It's not the resurrection that makes him uh, God. It is uh, it is evidence that what he taught about himself is true. And, of course, the fact that the Father raises him from the dead uh, proves that he wasn't lying, he wasn't uh, misrepresenting uh, God or anything along those lines. And so I think we have to be careful because sometimes people will say, well, because Jesus rose from the dead, that proves his deity, but Jesus raised other people from the dead, and that didn't make them uh, deities themselves. Uh, so we have to be really careful, I think, as to exactly where we put the weight of um, of the claim we're making. Hmm. That's a that's a pretty good explanation of that. So th the follow-up question is that uh, about, you said there about the God has revealed himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. So uh, doesn't it fall into the pantheism rather than monotheism because the concept of multiple gods so right. as christians we know that it is one god but for the skeptics who doesn't know they consider it as one of the pantheism right well and and the muslims will likewise say um mm. because the author of the quran did not understand what was in the bible and therefore the muslims will say that we are polytheists and we believe in multiple gods and again, the fact that we have one God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, Yahweh says, there is no other God besides me. In Isaiah 43, 10, he says, before me, there is no God formed. There shall be none after me. Uh, and by the way, just in passing, um, I was, I had been following the Lord for many years before I realized that Jesus quoted that passage, Isaiah 43.10, of himself, identifying himself as Yahweh on the night of his betrayal. Look at look up John 13.19. It's beautiful, but I, I had never heard anyone preach on it. I had never heard anyone make that claim, but it's it's the case. It's uh, just one of many uh, treasures hidden in the in the pages of scripture. 
But anyway, uh, we, we know there's only one God. He knows of no other God. There's no God before him, no God after him. And yet, we have three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They communicate with one another. Um, there, there is, you read John chapter 17, and Jesus says to the Father, uh, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had in your presence before the world was. That's one person speaking to another person, speaking of a glorious preexistence uh, in eternity past. So you have three persons, and yet they're each described as Yahweh and as, as deity. And so that doesn't make three gods. You can't, you can't develop three gods. You can't split Yahweh into three parts. And so from the very beginning, Christians have confessed not only the, the deity of Christ, but likewise the fact that uh, there is a unique relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit, just as in the same way they confess that Jesus was extremely unique because he was the God-man, fully God, fully man. And you have that not only in Scripture, but you have that in the very earliest writings outside the Scriptures. For example, uh, when uh, Bishop Ignatius wrote to the church at Ephesus, um, he beautifully describes the two natures of Christ. And so when we, when when people want to ask, well, how can that be? If they want to go beyond Okay, the Bible says there's one God. The Bible says there are three divine persons, distinguishes between them, does not confuse them, and yet identifies each one as God, each one is worshipped, each one is prayed to. Uh, how do you put that together? Well, in the West, um, philosophically, we've made a distinction between being and person. And so the being of God is the one being of God, eternal, unchangeable, um, not dependent upon anything outside of uh, of God's own existence, um, that is shared fully by three divine persons. And being and person are not the same things. And this explains what Scripture says. Uh, but I recognize that's a Western way of thinking, primarily. Um, and so whenever I'm talking to, you know, most of the people I talk to are from the West, and so I use that type of category, but I realize you're dealing with a different situation and to answer questions that did not exist at the time of the writing of scripture. The church has to be very, very careful to accurately represent what the content of scripture is without um, altering the, the message and the, and the content of what the gospel is and what the gospel says about who Jesus is and things like that. And that's the real challenge, to be honest with you. It's it's very, very, um, you know, dealing with secularists today. And I'm sure you have a huge rise in secularism uh, there just as as here. It's, it's a global thing. Um, trying to answer the questions that the secular mind raises uh, to divine realities uh, requires a great deal of care, and it really requires us to always be going back to Scripture as our foundation because the, the tendency for us, we come up with our our little arguments and things like that, and sometimes they take on a life of themselves, of, of their own, unfortunately. 
And we always have to be examining these things in light of scripture itself, because that really is um, the methodology that God uses to draw his people into himself is the beauty of the scriptures. Mm, absolutely. So, so since you talked about the Trinity and you explained it very well that as Bible says that God is one in three person, the Yahweh, and he revealed himself in three, three person. So all these things we know that through the scripture, right? We have a Bible and we know all these things, information about Jesus, uh, is because of the gospel writers. So who were, the, so uh, the question is, we know that there are many other books apart from 66 books. So who were the people who decided the canon? And yeah. what are their credentials? I mean, I can add any book, but what, what on what basis I can add or what basis they added? I would, um, I would really, uh, since this will be posted on YouTube, um, I would really like to suggest that people uh, look up a presentation that I did together with Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president of RTS in Charlotte, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte here in the United States at the G3 conference in, I think, 2018. Um, once you, you're young, you remember everything. Once you get to my age, the years just all get sort of squished together. So you, you <laughs> eventually, it, it's just the way it is. But I think it was about 2018. He and I did a little over hour-long presentation on the nature of the canon. And one of the key insights, and, and he's written a number of books that I would highly recommend to you, on the subject of the canon, and my couple of chapters in my book, Scripture Alone, um, argue in the same way that Dr. Kruger did. I wrote mine before he did, he wrote his, but um, we came to the same conclusions. And that is that the canon is not something that is decided by councils or groups outside uh, of the apostles or that come 200 years later, 300 years later. That's the common way that people think about it. But the reality is the canon is not a historical thing. It's a theological concept first and foremost, because what's it saying? The canon says these are the books that are theonoustos. They are God-breathed in the original language. These are the books that are God-breathed in opposition to all other books, which are not. And so... If it was, in fact, up to a group of men or a single man or something like that, uh, that person would have to be inspired. That person would have to have tremendous authority. And um, it would, it would in, in many ways, deny the, the concept of sola scriptura because you'd, you'd basically have to have an ongoing revelation uh, to reveal to you what the canon of scripture actually is. As, I, as we point out in that YouTube video, uh, the canon is an artifact of revelation. What I mean by that is since God inspired at least one book, but did not inspire all books, as soon as God acted in Moses, or some people say Job was earlier than Moses, but um, since when God supernaturally acted to begin to reveal himself in that form to mankind. Once he brought 
that into existence, the canon automatically came into existence as well, except only God knew what it was. God knows the canon infallibly. Why? Well, the same way that I know the canon of my books infallibly. I know exactly how many books I've written. Uh, I remember writing each book. Um, and no one else has an infallible knowledge of that canon because nobody was with me every moment of every day of all those years that I was involved in writing 24 books or contributing to 24 books as well. Um, so I have infallible knowledge of the canon because I'm the author. God has infallible knowledge of the canon because he's the author. And so the question is, how much does God want us to know the canon? Well, Scripture itself tells us that God's purpose in giving us Scripture is for his church, for his people, for our guidance, for our blessing. And so if God is going to extend the energy and the, the divine power and grace to give us Scripture, um, to sovereignly have, you know, the Apostle Paul was a unique, unique individual, and so God brought him into existence, and same with the with John, and same with Mark. He he does all this, and no one can describe in a scientific way how Scripture is given. But we do have a description in Scripture. Men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know it's men speaking. Um, I teach Greek and Hebrew, and when you read Paul and then you read Luke, you know you're reading two different people. They have very different styles, very, very different mm -hmm. styles in the original language. Um, and in some of the epistles, Paul says, you know, to Timothy, bring the cloak and the parchments, and it's cold. I mean, that's a man speaking. But what he's speaking is from God. And as he's speaking, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you have this supernatural mechanism that gives us Scripture in exactly the form God wants us to have. Well, if you went through all that trouble and utilized all that uh, power to, to bring that about, don't you think he would then likewise lead his people to recognize what is and what is not Scripture? And remember something. Jesus held men accountable to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Well, how do we know it's supposed to be in the Old Testament? Because there were there were intertestamental books, there were the apocryphal books that the Roman Catholics accepted scripture. There were other books written in that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. Um, and yet the Jews never accepted them. And the Jews, 200 years before Christ's birth, laid up in the temple copies of the very same books that we have in our Bible today as being inspired from God. No angel came down, said, this is the table of contents, this is the index, these are the books that are inspired, these are the ones that are not. That didn't happen. But there was fundamental agreement amongst the Pharisees anyways. The Sadducees were a little bit on the political side, so we can put them off the side. But there was agreement as to what was and what was not Scripture uh, by the time of Christ's ministry. And it's interesting, it's about the same time period 
350 to 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And it's about that same time period after the time of Christ that you have universal clarity as to the nature of the New Testament canon as well. Um, in neither case did you have angelic visitations. In neither case did you have a council sitting down and taking votes. I mean, that is all over YouTube. I'm <laughs> Every time I hear somebody saying, well, the Council of Nicaea decided this, I just want to hit myself in the head with a brick or something to make it feel better because uh, the Council of Nicaea said nothing about the canon. Nothing was decided at the Council of Nicaea about canons or anything like that. In fact, there was never a, can, a, a, a council that sat down and said, we have the authority to determine what scripture is until the Council of Trent in 1546 for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so, uh, in fact, the, the first uh, listing we have in the New Testament books in the form that we have them today is from Athanasius, the bishop of uh, Alexandria, uh, in 367, as I recall, it was his 39th festal letter, and he listed the same New Testament books that we have today. But he wasn't, by doing that, going, I'm creating the canon. He was saying, this is what the church has recognized as the uh, inspired books, and all of that is passive. That's the church recognizing what God has done, not investing in someone, because because remember the way you put it, I think you put it, what were their credentials or something along those lines? No one ever claimed to have the credentials to determine what scripture was at all. Uh, it was always a passive recognition of the nature of scripture and that these books are unlike any other books. Mm, that's a great explanation. And the books you've suggested and the interviews you've suggested, I will uh, post it in my link in description. So you guys can check it out. So you were talking about the from the intertestamental period from the Malachi to Matthew. So could you just please tell us the, what is the intertestament period and was God inactive in that period? Well, God's never inactive. He was working with his people. He was guiding uh, uh, the, the history of, of the world. Uh, in fact, Daniel had already prophesied at that point what was going to be going on during that period with the, remember the, the, various types of materials in the statue and uh, Rome at the bottom and the Greek empire. And so there's lots of stuff going on. But what is interesting is after Malachi, uh, even the Jewish people themselves recognized that the Baf Kol, the voice of God had ceased, that there were no prophets in Israel during that time period. And that's why there was so much um, interest in anyone who claimed to be the Messiah, because from their perspective, the next thing to happen was for the was for the Messiah to come. And so there had been false false messiahs that had come, and 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 of course the Jews had all sorts of theories as to what the Messiah was supposed to be like, and and uh, and things like that. But no, God had not become inactive, um, but very clearly, the the crucifixion was to take place in a certain way, at a certain time, in a certain place, and he was working his decree and accomplishing that. 
um, and bringing everything together because when you think about it, uh, the Roman Empire, having the Roman Empire uh, pretty much at its height of power meant that the gospel was able to go out all across the Roman Empire. Now, yes, there was persecution, and the worst persecution took place between 303 and 313, that 10-year period where Rome tried to wipe out the, the Christian faith. But there were safe roads. There was the ability to send uh, epistles uh, to other places. Um, and there was a universal language. Mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, Alexander the Great, Koine Greek, common Greek, was spoken all across the Mediterranean, um, and that allowed for ease of communication, establishment of churches. You know, God's providence is clearly, uh, you're able to see that. Um, so, yes, there was a cessation of prophetic revelation during that 400 years, and the Jews recognized that. And that allowed for, for example, the identification of the books of Scripture, uh, which became, and the translation, this is also really important, because think about it, the Hebrew language was only known by a small number of people worldwide. But Koine Greek, everybody could muddle their way through that. And so 250 to 200 years before Christ, you have translations of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek which eventually becomes what we call today the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church. I mean, they didn't have Gospels and things like that until they were written. So what scriptures did they have? They had the Greek Septuagint. And um, that had to be produced as well. So yes, God was still quite active, just not mm -hmm. in the sense of giving scripture. Wow, that's a pretty insightful, that God was never inactive, and the prophecies were being fulfilled in the four, uh, in these 400 years and then Christ came, right? So uh, many people ask this question that why did God choose only Israel and why not India? Why not Africa or why not any other country? So does, and we read in the scripture that salvation comes uh, to first Jews and to the Gentiles. So does this election mean salvation? Does an election mean salvation? Well, there's there's a couple things there. Um, first, I think it's really important to recognize that the scriptures do say to Israel, you of all the peoples have I known. That doesn't mean that God didn't know everything about all the other peoples around the world. But it was a personal choice on God's part to enter into relationship with them. And that was primarily because they were the offspring of Abraham, uh, who was called the friend of God. So God had entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his offspring. And so God could have had Abraham as the father of any people. Uh, and the problem with the Jewish people, as we see in the Gospels, is that they boasted of that and came to the conclusion eventually that they could pretty well behave and do what they wanted to do because they were the covenant people of God. And that's why Jesus said, hey, God could raise up offspring to Abraham from these rocks. Don't 
don't think you're all that special. And in fact, uh, as I think it's Amos that says, you know, the reason that God chose people of Israel is not because they were more numerous or better or anything, but because God is free to choose who he wishes. And in fact, he chose a stiff-necked people. And that helped him to demonstrate his graciousness and his mercy and his long-suffering, his patience. Uh, and we learned so much uh, from God's dealings with the people of Israel through all of that. So when we talk about election in the in the context of God chose Abraham and his offspring, uh, that's a different thing that when, than when we look at election um, in eternity past in Christ of a specific people like you have in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and so you have an election, un, you do have passages of election unto service, but then you clearly have passages of election unto salvation. So the children of Abraham in one sense are elected unto salvation because there is a sense in which only those who are of the faith of Abraham are right with God. I mean, you look at Romans chapter 4. That's the argument is we need to have the faith that Abraham had, and that was a faith that was not dependent upon works. It was, it was, it was not, I'm going to try to earn my way into a relationship with God and stuff like that. Um, and so that election in that sense uh, would be under salvation. But then there is simply an election of a, of a people to function in a particular way. If you want a good example, look what happened with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. He told Moses before he ever went into Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. And there is a reason. The reason was that God wanted to demonstrate his power over all the gods of Egypt. And when you study the plagues, by the way, you'll see that there were gods that were being demonstrated to be worthless and non-existent by every plague that God brought. And so God was glorifying himself in the destruction of the idols of the people of Egypt. And so you could say that there was an election of Pharaoh and his armies but it was an election under not under salvation, but under destruction, and that for God's glory and for our benefit. Uh, in in many many years after that, so you have to be really specific as to what you're referring to when you talk about election. Hmm. Yeah. So there is a this thin line between this election thing, right? The predestination thing. Well, yes, predestination has a more specific uh, use in passages such as Romans 8 or Ephesians 1. Um, there, you're, there you're no longer talking about an ethnic group. You're talking about a people in Christ Jesus. Um, and their election is not based upon what they've done. It's not, elect, it's not based upon God looking into the future and seeing what they would do. It's completely based upon his mercy and grace. And uh, that is predestination unto salvation. So there, that's Romans 8, what's called the golden mm -hmm. chain of redemption. Uh, those who before knew, and foreknew, by the way, is, a, is an active thing. 
It's not God looking down the corridors of time and seeing what somebody else is going to do. Uh, to foreknow is an active verb in the original language. It's it's an act of choosing to enter into relationship with. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined, called, justified, glorified. These are all things that God does, and God accomplishes perfectly. Great. Praise God. So uh, the this is the last question I'm going to ask, which I ask every guest. So what advice would you give to the young Christians, those who are influenced by this uh, internet, other philosophies, and other worldviews? Well, look, uh, God has given us his wisdom in how we can grow in Christ, how we can have the blessing of being involved in expanding his kingdom. And what he's told us is really not all that difficult. The problem is it's something we need to be doing day in and day out. So simple obedience to Christ's commands. What does he say? If you're going to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so I, I gave a presentation just yesterday on, on living in the kingdom of God. And one of, you know, basically my statement was that every time we do what Christ would have us to do, uh, you mentioned that you're a, a newly married man, okay? Well, I can guarantee you, I can tell you right now, you will be faced with the choice daily, you already have been faced with it, and you will be faced with it much more in the future, of fulfilling your own desires or putting those desires aside and leading your wife, as a Christian man should, of not being a selfish individual, but of serving her, uh, making it so she can be more like Christ. There's it's a daily thing, and every mm-hmm. husband is faced with those those situations. Once you have children, then it's only multiplied. Now the two of you together uh, are doing what you can to protect those children, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And these are basic things. And every time we are obedient and we do these things, we are advancing Christ's kingdom. Because remember, um, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus reveals himself to the apostles, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what what does Jesus say? Um, The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Mm -hmm. Now, gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive in nature. And so the picture there is not of Hades coming at the church and we have gates and are holding it out. The opposite is true. We're storming Hades. We're attacking the the culture of death, the, 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 the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus' promise was their defensive mechanisms, their gates, which are meant to keep us out, will not be able to. And people think, therefore, that, well, I have to do big stuff and I have to um, you know, make a big splash if I'm going to advance the kingdom of God, if I'm going to um, advance in my own sanctification and my own confidence in the gospel. No, actually, it's doing the little things day in and day out that 
is like taking a sledgehammer and smashing those gates. I'm a, I'm going to be obedient today. I'm going to be Christ-like to my wife. I'm going to be Christ-like to my children. That is a smashing of the gates of Hades. The world doesn't see it that way, but heaven does. Mm-hmm. And that's the important part. So uh, I wish, you know, a lot of people wish there was just this super-duper cool way of making yourself super Christian. Uh, the reality is God works with each one of us. He puts us through trials and tribulations. We go through really hard times, and we go, man, I've, I have learned so much about what God would have me to do. And then six months later, we're right back in the same situation because we've forgotten. And God is so patient with us, and he works with us over and over and over again. But that's how the that's how the kingdom grows. It doesn't grow with these big, flashy superstars. Uh, it grows with the faithful Christians living their lives, uh, not compromising, and um, that's that's how it moves forward. So don't spend all your time on the internet. Use it as a as a means of information, but be in the church, be involved in ministry to others. You know, it's real easy to sit in your home and talk about loving the brethren uh, as long as the brethren aren't anywhere near you. <laughs> uh, it's real easy to love people that you're not around. Um, but if you are investing yourself in others, um, then you find out what love is really all about. And um, that's, uh, that's the Christian life. Mm. Wow, that's an excellent advice that simple obedience is must and have fellowship and just practice what you have learned. So thank you, Dr. James, for such a wonderful time. And I hope many will be blessed after hearing this. And thank you for accepting the invitation.